Lost souls cross like ships in the night. One throws herself into the hope of work after losing the love of her life. The other, afraid, she'll languish away under the weight of her late husband's legacy. When these two brilliant minds are brought together, perhaps they can find love and solace. I'm Heather Songster, and this is Hopelessly Romantic. Welcome back, readers and romance seekers, to another episode. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be back. I've missed reading these fun books, and I've missed you. I know when we last left off, I had another book in the works, but it's February now, and I'm not going to subject you all to a Christmas novel. And I will also say that our format will be slightly different from here on out. I've been experimenting and thinking a lot about moving forward with the podcast, I want to evolve and grow and change. Don't worry, I'll still be reviewing novels like always. It'll just look a little different. So here goes. Today we are reading The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite. It's the first in her Feminine Pursuit series, and as far as I can tell, there are two others that have been published so far. This is an older title for sure. The nature of mass-market romance and erotic romance keeps wheels constantly churning, And it's possible I may have never found this book in regular circumstances. It was published in June of 2019, so it's been quite a while. I didn't come across this book by any of my usual methods, either wandering in the bookstore or scrolling through romantic titles on a website. I found this book through a YouTube video of all places, specifically Bernadette Banner's channel. If you aren't familiar with Banner's content, you should know that she is historical costumer, trying to create garments as historically accurate as possible, including fabrics, methods, and styles. Celestial Mechanics was featured on a video that she did to correct outfits seen on historical romance books, and it stood out to me because it was a sapphic Regency romance. Sapphic meaning women-loving women. Before we do get too far ahead of ourselves, I did want to take a moment to talk real quick about the publisher as well. Celestial Mechanics was published by Avon Books, an imprint of the much larger HarperCollins. Specifically, it's Avon Impulse. I had to do a little digging, and this is why I wanted to talk about it. As far as I can tell, Avon Impulse is a digital-first imprint, meaning they'll publish via ebook first, and if the novel sells well, it moves on to a print copy. As a result of this, they take on lesser-known or debut authors. So that's pretty neat if one wants to get their name out. Unfortunately, a lot of the sources that I found describing this are a bit old, so I can't be sure if this is up-to-date or accurate information. If you're looking to sell your romance manuscript, you should do further research. Having all that said and done, let's get started. Ah, It's so good to look at a cover again, and it's all the better with such a nice one to start with. Red is the defining characteristic here. Our two main characters seem to be lying in a bed covered in red silk sheets. The two women are laying close together, embracing, one encouraging the other by caressing her lover's cheek. To my eye, the dresses don't look terrible. However, the previously mentioned Miss Banner has more than a few nitpicks, and she does actually know what she's talking about. I think there's a lot to be said for artistic license, and as far as I'm concerned, at least they seem to have made an effort. It's not like the cover for The Princess Plan, which didn't even try to hit any kind of historical accuracy. I'm still mad about that. If I do have any concerns about the cover, I will say that there's some strange airbrushing happening on the woman on the left side, and the lighting suggests that the two women are lit by two completely different sources. 
I'm not surprised by this. We've seen plenty of covers where the couple in question don't look like they're even in the same time zone. It's not the worst, but it could be so much better. The cover, though, is not why we are here. Well, sort of, but you know what I mean. Let's get into the novel. First, our setting is established as 1816 England. This is the era of Regency, as we well know by this point. And with that setting, we need to take stock of a few facts. The agency of women during this time period is, let's say, questionable. Where romance novels are concerned, a great deal of energy is spent on women, typically of a higher class, getting married. There is an entire season of dances called the marriage market, where people would attend a number of social events for the sole purpose of finding a potential match. During this nonsensical pageantry, we see in these novels the virtue of women placed on such a high pedestal that not a lot of sexual education is available. In a good number of the Regency romances that I've read, the women are so unprepared for their first night as a married woman, it's pretty nerve-wracking. I have a theory for this phenomena, which mostly centers on the insecurity of modern female readers. In America, at least, we are taught from a young age that our virginity is the most important thing we can give our husbands, and that we should strive to keep ourselves pure. But women are still, you know, people, so we will still feel sexual desire. The purity culture in America wraps women up in guilt for their sex drive, and that can get reflected in these Regency novels. We can romanticize the whole ritual of flirting, finding the perfect partner, and then feeling sexually satisfied in a way that might feel familiar, but also safe. You'll note that this entire process is steeped in heteronormative tropes and plots, and I will note that not every Regency romance follows this formula, but we can see the background radiation of its effects in every Regency story. So what happens when we bring lesbians into this environment? I am still relatively new to Regency romances, and I'm making a bigger effort to find more LGBTQI plus content to feature on our podcast, so The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics is my first foray into this particular trope subversion. The story will begin with Lucy Mulchelne, and I am 100% confident I am not pronouncing that name correctly. We find her sitting in the front pew as she is watching the love of her life marry a man. This is what I meant about that background radiation. The bride, Priscilla, had an inheritance from her grandmother and could only collect upon it with her marriage. She wanted to be able to live comfortably without strife or worry, and unfortunately, that meant that she had to leave her lover Lucy to marry a man that she doesn't love. From the way it's presented in most Regency novels, women are essentially the property of men. First, they're the property of their fathers, and then they're the property of their husbands. If neither one is applicable, if there's a brother, they're then the property of the brothers. Their lives are defined by the relationship to the men in their lives. In the case of Lucy, her father had recently passed away, and thus she has become a ward of her brother. He is a painter, an artist with a rather inflated view of himself, but he has concerns about money and Lucy's future. But his idea of her future is very different from hers. For starters, their father had been an astronomer, and quite a popular one. His love of the stars had been passed on to Lucy, and for the last few years of her father's life, she had been doing most, if not all, of his calculations and charting on his behalf. She wants to continue his work, but her brother won't hear of it. She is not known as an astronomer, and certainly wouldn't be able to support herself, let alone na make a name for herself. Heartbroken and unable to pursue a life of her choosing, Lucy is desperate for a way out. 
Her brother goes off to be with his artist friends, promising her that when he returns, they will have a serious discussion about securing her future and a match. It seems as though she is going to lose what agency she had as her father's assistant, along with losing her love. Her salvation comes in the form of a letter from one Catherine St. Day, a widowed countess. Her husband had had a great number of travels and brought back a variety of things that contributed to the pursuit of scientific knowledge. Right before he died, he purchased a book of astronomy by a French author named Oleron, and it was sweeping across European scientific circles. Unfortunately, the Count had died before he could secure a translation. Catherine wrote to Lucy, first to offer condolences on the loss of her father, but she also asked if the old astronomer had any students or protégés that he'd left behind. She had hoped that he would have translated the work, but since he was dead now, she wasn't sure where to turn. In a last-ditch effort to prove to her brother that she could manage herself and her affairs, Lucy packs herself up and sets out for London, to make her argument to Catherine St. Day, the Countess of Moth, that she should be allowed to translate the Oleron text. Why not? St. Day had asked if her father had left behind any protégé, and here she was. While we contemplate the perils of trying to be a woman with STEM aspirations, I want to take a moment to let you all know that I have begun a Patreon. I want to be able to continue doing this podcast, and it will go a long way to helping me make that possible. Patreons will enjoy some exclusive perks, such as early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and being named as a way of thanks when they sign up. You can find our page at patreon.com slash hopelesslyromantic. Your support means so much to me and my technical advisor, and I can't wait to keep bringing you all more wonderful stories in the future. Now, back to our regularly scheduled astrological drama. I should take a moment to note that there are more than a few women astronomers in years past, many of whom advanced the science in quite great leaps. The term scientist was coined because Mary Somerville, a Regency-era astronomer, could not be described as a man of science. I like that the author has touched upon this bit of scientific history. Women have played a greater role in science than we might realize, and were it not for this book, I wouldn't even know the name Mary Somerville. So now we turn to Catherine, a widow at only 35. Her husband, George, didn't exactly seem like a very kind fellow. As she sits alone in her big house, she's not fully able to adjust to the quiet and the peace. George would yell, throw things, cause Catherine to walk on eggshells. Now she was free from his anger and wants only to be done with the work that he started and then wash her hands of it. Not unlike most romantic heroines, we are dealing with some capital B backstory here on both ends of our romantic pairing. We can start with Catherine. At the beginning, we get hints that her late husband wasn't exactly affectionate, quite the contrary. At first, it might sound like he was extremely focused and devoted to his work, to the point of frustration and anger. But as we get deeper into Catherine's story, we can see how George dominated literally every aspect of her life for the worse. During one conversation with Lucy, we can see that the aggression dipped into their bedroom. He found particular ecstasy in giving pain, and I tolerated the pain because it was 
so novel to bring someone happiness instead of misery or anger. Sometimes, when he hurt me more than I could bear, I lashed out in return. He enjoyed that, too. The struggling, the hurt. I felt like a wild thing most of the time, but my lover was ecstatic about it. It baffled me, even as it gratified. And I thought, maybe all the better kind of passion had been drained from me, from too many years of neglect. See, Catherine isn't exactly sure what to do with this young astrologer who's landed at her door. Lucy had successfully made her case to translate Oleron's book, and Catherine has agreed to financially support her as she does it. But as time goes on, Catherine finds herself becoming increasingly attracted to the beautiful Lucy, and so we uncover the pain that the Countess has tried to ignore. What I enjoy is that, in some ways, Lucy is the more experienced of the two. While yes, Catherine had been married, she was somewhat unfamiliar with being in a relationship with a woman. Lucy, on the other hand, was just coming out of what was a long-term relationship, one that she hoped to expect to last the rest of her life. Catherine even experiences some jealousy when she thinks of the time that Lucy has spent with Priscilla. The trope of the older and more experienced partner is pretty typical in most of the Regencies that I've read, so it's nice to see that turned on its head. There's a scene where Lucy admits that Catherine knew more than she expected, but still finds out that the Countess has more to learn. The Countess leaned up on one elbow, the lightest furrow appearing between her golden brows. Where on earth are you going? Anticipation shot through Lucy, comet-like. Oh, so this isn't one of the things... Her hands drifted up from the lady's knees to her trembling thighs and rushed her thumbs along the tender folds between the countess's legs. Let me show you a trick that I learned in my school days, though I promise you won't find it anywhere in the curriculum. She bent her head and licked once, precisely where she knew Catherine needed it most. The book is filled with cute little moments like this, both in and out of the bedroom, and I'm loving every bit of it. Shifting gears for a moment, I want to talk about another trend that I see. That is of the rich suitor and the not-so-rich-maybe-even-poor love interest. I've seen this the most in the Harlequins, especially when we've added the complications of a surprise baby. Obviously, there isn't a baby here. Or is there? The trope usually goes as follows. Person A is rich and may have a fast passing contact with person B, who may be less than economically secure. This results in surprise baby C. Person B carries through with the pregnancy under the care of person A. Person A might worry that person B only cares about the monetary safety. And person B might worry that once the baby is born, person A will take said baby and send person B off to wherever. Lucy knew Catherine in passing via the messages between her father and Catherine's husband. Lucy had been nurturing her love of astronomy despite lack of funds, so wonders if Catherine's help might help her endeavors. The baby in question is the translation for Oleron. As her story progresses, Lucy worries that once the translation is done, she's going to be SOL, and Catherine worries that Lucy is just giving affection and kindness solely because she is financing Lucy's dream. Luckily, there is space for us to watch their relationship grow. We as readers are given perspectives from both Lucy and Catherine, 
So we can know that neither one of them has anything to worry about. We have that security knowing that they truly love one another, but still get to experience that oh-so-sweet pain that is romantic angst. Aside from this budding romance, there's the point that the whole plot hinges on, this translation of a groundbreaking astronomy text. It's through this outlet that we are introduced to a wide number of characters that fill in this setting. The author has done an excellent job of making sure that we have a solid backdrop for our drama. There's a group called the Polite Science Society, and Catherine is hoping to present Lucy and her work to said society. However, this is, again, Regency England, and the abilities of women and their agency is greatly underestimated and unrealized. This group, the Polite Science Society, accepts members as fellows, I'm guessing as worthy individuals, based on their contributions to science, either financially or practically. Countess Moth is not a fellow, despite her financial contributions, thanks solely to her gender. She is hoping to present Lucy as a candidate for the Oleron translation, intending to promise a portion of the funds needed to print and publish the work. However, one of the leaders of the group, a Mr. Hawley, is staunchly against this. He and the other fellows scoff at the idea of Lucy as a translator, even if she studied at her father's knee. They insist that she couldn't possibly have had anything of note to contribute, and even if she did, they would refuse to put her name on the publication. Catherine is incensed, of course, and retracts her financial support, promising them and Lucy that she's going to back Lucy's translation instead. If you're a reader who enjoys a cathartic girl-boss story, this would be a good novel for you. I personally felt that they might have leaned a little too hard into girl-boss, but I'm not completely against it. Sometimes we do need a hammer to get some of those points driven home. Gender is a big part of this novel, not just with Lucy's work. Catherine grapples with herself in a number of ways. After her husband's death, she didn't fully understand this underlying part of herself, of her romantic needs, until she discovers a friend of her mother's had been just more than a friend. Catherine made herself comfortable in the opposite seat and finally opened up the box with the thoughts she'd been hiding away for most of her existence. The inescapable truth. Women could fall in love with other women. Strange indeed that an idea could change your life so completely, and yet fit in so perfectly with all that it came before. She felt the force of it in her very bones. It was less as if her biography were being rewritten and more as though Catherine were suddenly able to read the other set of lines that lay crosswise on the familiar page. Catherine has the biggest river to cross in terms of her self-acceptance. She's happy to explore and discover that she and Lucy may enjoy the other's company in the bedroom, as well as their companionship. But she's also spent a while under the angry thumb of her controlling husband, unable to nourish talents of her own. And Catherine does have talents. Not only is she an exquisite embroiderer, but she's also a highly adept botanical artist. She loves to recreate the exotic plants that she encountered while she accompanied her husband's scientific travels, both on the page and with the needle. She spends a great deal of time developing celestial motifs for embroidery, happily adorning the dull mourning clothes that Lucy had to wear after her father's death. She doesn't call herself an artist, and Lucy rebukes her, saying that just because embroidery is a feminine pursuit doesn't mean that she isn't an artist in her own right. 
There are plenty of other examples of women-led accomplishments in this novel, and I really did enjoy watching women supporting women all the way up until the end. There's catharsis with both social status and past pain, and if you need an emotional boost for your interests, you'll probably find it here. I know that the low-stakes, cozy WLW romance is an in thing right now, and I'd say that this novel qualifies. It may not be low stakes exactly. I mean, the future of women's contribution to scientific discovery is on the line here, but I didn't feel that pressure while I was reading. It was a kind novel, where insecurities were explored and rifts bridged and crossed. And with that, I think it is time to go into Heather's final score. Our cover is getting a four out of five. It's a great cover, with the red just dominating everything. I love the composition, the emotions on the Countess's face, the suggestion of silk. My only real nitpicks come from that weird photoshopping on Lucy's face, and the fact that the fancy historical YouTube expert said that the dresses weren't super on point. And it's really that weird airbrush texture that really brings down the score. Had it not been for that, this would have gotten a 5, even with the inaccurate dresses. Romance is going to get a 4 out of 5 as well. It was such an organic romance. They were allowed the time to get to know one another and were able to find common ground in their interests. Lucy was able to heal the scars left behind when Priscilla didn't even tell her that she was getting married to a man, and Catherine was able to learn about herself through stories from her mother and watching Lucy grow and blossom into the accomplished scholar that she deserved to be. Both of them were staunch supporters of the other, and even near the end, during that expected third act separation, they knew that their lives had changed irrevocably with their relationship. Now I'm giving Spice a 3 out of 5, but that's not a bad thing. This is a cozy romance, like I said. Here we don't necessarily need those hardcore descriptions that we might find in something like American Queen. Instead, we get suggestions of parts and activities, and I'm perfectly happy with that. We don't always need Mega Spice to feel satisfied. I'm giving a drama 5 out of 5. Not because the drama itself was ridiculous, but because I felt that it was more or less perfectly balanced inside of the romance. That romance, the sapphic discovery, and the drama around getting Lucy's translation published were woven together in a way that you could not separate them if you tried. It might have something to do with the fact that the stakes were technically lower than they might be in another novel, but they were appropriate for the setting of our story. Finally, realism is going to get a 4 out of 5. I don't doubt that a romance like this absolutely could have occurred in Regency England. We can only speculate, of course, with the famous joke that historians probably labeled a lot of queer romances as roommates, but I have no doubt that couples like Lucy and Catherine also existed. We also have that amusing trope of lesbians showing up to first dates with a U-Haul, <laughs> and that's more or less what Lucy did when she decided to make her case to the Countess of Moth. And finally, I give it a high realism score because whenever I look up the astronomer Mary Somerville, I certainly see that it's mirrored elements of Lucy's journey. So if you're looking for a cozy, sapphic Regency romance where two women learn both about themselves, what they can accomplish, and about each other, while embracing the challenges that they face for being women, I'll give this novel a high recommendation. I've decided that The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics deserves a place on the gold star shelf with five starlight embroidered gowns out of five.
Thank you for joining me, readers and romance seekers, and I hope to see you once again for Hopelessly Romantic. If you like the show, please visit us at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to recommend a read, please email us at contact at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. The show is written and produced by me, Heather Songster. Our technical advisor is Kwong Hin Cho. Hopelessly Romantic is an HOK production, and it doesn't matter what you read, only that it's what you love. <laughs> <laughs>